Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm. Yes, indeed we do. <sighs> Here we are. I never know what to say there. I know. Just, <laughs> just, like, just agree. Yes. You're just ag- Yes. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> correct information. <laughs> yeah. I just... Uh, Speak from the heart, I guess. That, that, that is true. So the other uh, night I had a really weird dream. Okay, It was actually me. a really great dream. And it was a dream that we got an email from a local brewing company. Stop it. That wanted to uh, <laughs> sponsor us with free alcohol. Oh my goodness. That is drinks. the dream, really. That is the dream. Yeah. And so tonight I am here to tell you that that has not happened yet. And someone can make my wildest dreams come true. <laughs> you too can make Kevin's dream that he had that one time come true. <laughs> but I, I feel like we crossed a threshold when I started dreaming about the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moments of being like, oh no, it's not ready yet. And waking up and realizing that it was only Tuesday. Yeah. You know, one of those. Yeah. You wake up in a fluster about <laughs> mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot to edit. Oh, wait. Yeah. It's, we didn't even record one yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> People tell me they look forward to Thursdays and that like makes me so thankful and happy. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I hate waiting all the way until Thursday. I, I love, I love Thursdays. Like, when, oh, on you. the occasions that we drop a midweek episode mm-hmm. or, or an early week episode, uh, we've had, we've had now someone say that it made them think it was Thursday. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're just straight up messing with everybody's biological timers in their brains being like, Oh, it's almost the week. No, it's not. It's the beginning of the week. Sorry. Yes. Sorry to anybody who we disappointed by making think it was, it was Thursday on a Monday. No, Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we need to ask the question. What are you drinking? I, <laughs> okay. So I put Mountain Dew in my Starbucks cup. <laughs> <laughs> Is there coffee in there before? Yeah. I washed it. You mixed. Oh, oh, I thought you mixed coffee and Mountain Dew. I'm not a monster. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, no, oh. no. But I, it just feels weird putting mm-hmm. Mountain Dew in a Starbucks cup. But Especially I did. a Trente sized mm-hmm. Starbucks cup. Well, it didn't fill it all the way to the top. Oh, it I was see. just a, it was just a one singular can gotcha so the 16 like 17.5 a, fluid ounces or whatever a can is what is it that can? feels like a lot 12 it's 12 yeah. <laughs> a full pound of mountain <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, is... <laughs> excellent yes what are you drinking tonight i 
am drinking Dr. Pepper mm. and whiskey. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it, keeping a, a whiskey drink alive. I feel like December is the month that I most often turn towards whiskey. Ah, whiskey month. That's right. That's right. I don't know what it is about December, but it just, it makes me just, maybe it's because it's cold and whiskey warms up your body temperature. Not really, but it like tricks your body into thinking it is. So I don't know. Kevin's just just out here making false claims. Well, it's not false. If You made a claim almost that our your internal temperature raises for reals. But then I, okay. It tricks your body into thinking that that's what's happening. Does it though? Yes. It expands your blood vessels is how it happens. Okay. I'm not, I can't believe anything that you say until you verify. <laughs> oh my gosh. Google it. I'm not going to Google it right now. I'll, I'll, it'll be a feel good fact next week that I'll give. That's what, that's what's going to happen. Here's a preview of your feel good fact. Okay. Except for it's not feel good because it's a trick. <laughs> <laughs> it tricks your body into thinking something that is not true. Okay, well, we'll come back next week with the uh, what's what on yeah. uh, how whiskey affects our bodies That's biologically. Right. Got there it. We go. That's a good compromise. The, yeah, fair. Until then, you already have a feel-good fact for us for tonight, don't you? Yes. Well, why don't you tell us all about it? It's really long. Sorry. So there's a bridge in Washington called Nutty Narrows that was built to save squirrels from getting run over by traffic. A man named Amos Peters, who owned a construction contracting firm, noticed that loads of squirrels were getting run over on Olympic Way in Longview, Washington in 1960. To solve this problem and end the carnage, he commissioned a bridge to be built that would allow the squirrels to safely cross. The project took three years and cost roughly $1,000, which Amos fronted the bill for. Hmm. A bonus feel-good fact is that when Amos Peters passed away, the town had a giant statue of a squirrel holding a nut built and dedicated it to his memory. Oh my gosh. He saved so many squirrels because <laughs> they were like run out in traffic yeah. trying to cross from yeah. one side to the other. And so yeah. now they can safely cross. So is it is it just like a tiny little... It's like a narrow little bridge that's like up. Yeah. That they can access from like buildings and tree lines and stuff. Oh, funny. So cute. Yeah. That's they really. They have their own safe, safe way to cross. And he paid for it and he like contracted <laughs> people so out money. to do it. <laughs> oh, that is cute. That is so sweet. That is a feel good. Feel good. Just out here saving squirrels. And then the city commemorates it with a statue. <laughs> Everybody wins. That one is very feel good. It really is. Yeah. Well, now that you've brought us up, as usual, why don't you go ahead and crush our souls, stomp on our hearts with steel-toed boots, and why don't you share with us what you have for a story this week? All right, so for this week's regularly scheduled episode, I thought it was time that we covered some more hometown crime. This is one of those incidents that happened at a formative time in my life, and I can remember so many elements of this story, like mm. as it broke, mm-hmm. and the kind of like heavy, sad feeling that I felt and people around me felt as soon as we heard the news. This week marks 15 years since this tragic event took place, and so I thought that now would be a good time to get into this story. This is the heartbreaking story of the Von Mars shooting. Mm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this is a hard one. I'm going to just be honest up front and say that there's like a unique pressure. I feel like Mm. maybe I'm imposing it on myself, but because this is a hometown story and because uh, when you're close enough to something, I think you can feel the weight a little bit more differently. Yeah. Or a little bit. 
I don't, I don't know the exact word, but you feel the weight in a different way. Yeah. And I really want to do a good job with how I tell this story. Hmm. <laughs> I worked sure. really hard on it. Yeah. So, okay, let's get into it. December 5th, 2007 was a pretty ordinary day in Omaha, Nebraska. Stores and homes were decorated top to bottom with Christmas lights and decorations. People were busy at work and school and others were out and about shopping for the upcoming holiday. However, at 1.43 p.m., 911 operators in Omaha would get their first of several calls coming from inside of Westroads Mall. The first call that came was quickly answered by the operator, who was met with no words, but instead with the sound of gunshots. Oh, wow. Three gunshots at first. Hello? Followed by more gunshots. Hello? Followed by more gunshots. The operator would hear 25 gunshots before losing the call. More calls would pour in informing emergency services that there was an active shooter inside of the Von Moore store at West Roads Mall, and in the six minutes that it took for officers to arrive, it would become the single deadliest mass murder in Nebraska history since 1958. Wow. So what on earth happened here? What could possibly possess another human to go on a killing spree? Why did this happen? Mm. I'm afraid that I can only answer parts of these questions. So let's start by talking about the shooter, 19-year-old Robert Hawkins. But before I do, I want to make sure that I'm offering a content warning. Mm. This episode is about a mass shooting. Gun violence is an extremely sensitive topic, and I want to acknowledge that like straight out of the gate. Mm. I don't want to immortalize the monster who did this, but I want to explain a little bit about him and what he did so that I can get into the important part of the story. And that's the stories of the victims, Mm. who they were in life, what they cared about, and how the community responded with so much love and care in the days, weeks, and months after the incident. Yeah. Okay. So you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Whew. Okay. Robert Hawkins was born to his parents, Ronald Hawkins and Maribel Rodriguez at Royal Air Force Base in Suffolk, England, while his dad was stationed there during his time in the Air Force. Hmm. When he was three years old, his parents divorced and Robert moved in with his father. I couldn't find much information on his mother, but it sounds like she wasn't super involved in Robert's life very much after the divorce. I obviously could be wrong Mm. on that, but that's what it seems. Both parents did get remarried also. His father, Ronald, got remarried to a woman by the name of Candace Sims. From what I could find, Candace and Ronald did their very best with Robert as a small child, but both of them noticed a few things about him that raised some red flags. From a very young age, Robert would have these extremely explosive outbursts. It would go beyond your usual toddler tantrums and into a sort of like violent fury. He would lash out by throwing things. He'd swing his arms, hoping to land a hard hit. He'd grab you and try to bite you. And he would scream hurtful things at his parents until he'd eventually calm down and then return to his normal self. At his best, he was described as creative and full of wonder at the world. But when things were bad with Robert, they were really bad. Candace described Robert's childhood and how he dealt with it as, quote, the whole house was on eggshells almost all of the time, Mm -hmm. end quote. When he was four years old, Robert brought his outburst with him to preschool. It wasn't long before his dad and stepmom received a call that they needed to come get Robert from preschool and that he wouldn't be allowed to return due to his violent outbursts. He was regularly displaying concerning behavioral issues, including hitting other children. And on the day that he was thrown out, he threw a chair that actually hit another child. Oh, my gosh. The school was not equipped to handle this kind of behavior. And so that was that. Hmm. 
Robert's parents were at a loss at this point because these sorts of outbursts were a regular occurrence that were growing in intensity, becoming more physical and honestly more dangerous for everyone. Mm. And so his family were at their wits end. They tried to implement different disciplines. They consulted with professionals and things like that until eventually they decided that the best thing for him was to admit him into inpatient psychiatric care at the age of four. They knew he needed help and that they needed help as well. And they did not make this decision lightly. Hmm. He was there for a short time and there was a definite difference in him when he came home. He wasn't as impulsive and he wasn't having as many outbursts, but he also wasn't the same curious or creative kid either. Hmm. From this point forward, though, Robert seemed to focus all of the bubbling anger at his stepmom. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. He would target her and nitpick everything she said and did. From what I gathered, she seemed like she really loved him and cared for him, but that was not enough to stop the constant aggression towards her. Mm. As a teen, he would engage in a few behaviors that were a little bit more serious. He would steal his sister's money. He'd begun experimenting with drugs and alcohol. He would try and physically fight Candace. He would make threats such as saying that he would stab Candace in her sleep or that the only way she's leaving their house is if she was leaving in a body bag. He also put pesticides in her soda in an attempt to poison her at one point. Oh, my gosh. This not only caused strain on the relationship between the parents and Robert, but also between the parents, between Ron and Candace. Robert would also tell his friends and counselors at school that his stepmom was abusing him. And it really seems like this was a false allegation and that he was trying to leverage anything that he could against his stepmom. Wow. He also used a knife to carve the words kill her on his dresser. And he had also taken and hidden a bunch of knives in his closet. Candace was becoming increasingly convinced that Robert was a serious danger to himself and to others, specifically Mm. herself. Sure. It continued to escalate, and the aggression was once again so constant and spiraling out of control that he was admitted to psychiatric care again at the age of 14 in May of 2002. Mm. Doctors tried to come up with a diagnosis and treatment plan for Robert, but literally everything they tried didn't work. He would make a small amount of progress only for his psychiatrist to find violent drawings of his loved ones laying in pools of blood or hanging from nooses. Eventually, he would end up at Cooper Village, which is a residential treatment facility in North Omaha for youth. Hmm. The sign leading up to the entrance of Cooper Village read, quote, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree, end quote. It's like, Mm -hmm. they're hopeful. We're going to we're going to help you. The various people assigned to Robert's care were well aware that they had a task on their hands with him, but they were optimistic that they could help him. He would receive various types of care from private psychotherapy, family therapy, drug counseling, etc. He would remain in residential care until 2005, and at that point, he'd become a ward of the state, bouncing from foster care to his dad and stepmother's home to jail. He had a hard Mm. time holding down a job and wasn't doing well in school, and he eventually dropped out of Papillion La Vista High School. In August of 2006, the state terminated its custody of Robert, stating, quote, the child is non-amendable to further services, end quote. Wow. During this time, he'd also acquired a felony drug charge as well as several misdemeanors. He'd also been broken up with by his girlfriend of two years a few days before the attack. None Mm. of these things, not a single one of these things, is a good reason to go out and seek to harm or kill innocent people, just as a, so I'm being crystal clear about that. Yeah. And if I'm being honest, I don't want to talk about Robert at all. But in trying to figure out what led up to the events that would take place only a year after this time, one thing stands out to me more than anything else. 
He had so many resources. He had parents who were trying to help him. He had medical doctors and psychiatrists and caseworkers. He mm. had parents of friends, all these people trying to help him. Yeah. In all, I read that over $265,000 in state funding went to Robert's care. Could the state have wow. continued to fund treatment for Robert? Sure. But at the end of the day, that's the call that they made. That is yeah. not amendable to further services. Yeah. So what I'm saying here is that this is not the story of someone who fell through the cracks. Counselors at his school and his parents did not ignore red flags. Mental health care wasn't withheld from him. It just wasn't working. Yeah. Was everything done flawlessly? Of course not. Sure. Because these are humans that we're talking about here. But real effort was made to try and help to treat Robert, despite any mistakes on that end. And at the end of the day, Robert wanted to do what he chose to do next. Mm. So- Content warning, I'm about to describe the kind of aftermath and the result of the mass shooting. Yeah. Once again, sensitive topic. I'm going to work hard not to be gratuitous about the violence, but I'm going to describe the crime scene with relevant details. So please feel free to skip ahead if you do not want to hear about that. Mm. So on December 5th, 2007, Robert Hawkins wrote two suicide notes that he left for his family and friends. I'm not going to give this guy what he would have wanted by reading them in full, but a few things that he'd written really do highlight how senseless and pointless the upcoming attack was. He wrote, quote, please understand that I just don't want to be a burden on the ones that I care for my entire life. End quote. He apologized mm. to his family, telling them that he just snapped. And then he said, quote, I just want to take a few pieces of blank with me. End quote. I'm redacting the curse oh, sure, just sure. because we're clean. <laughs> we're clean. podcast, <clears throat> And... Just think, I'm going to be famous. Oh. He then stole an AK-47 style semi-automatic rifle and two magazines, each loaded with 30 rounds of ammunition. Some sources say that he stole this from his father's home and others say that he'd stolen it from his stepfather's home. But either way, he stole a rifle and ammunition. Shortly after, Robert got in his car, drove 20 minutes from his house in Bellevue to West Roads Mall and parked his vehicle. He entered the main entrance into Von Mar and looked around for a minute before he turned around and walked back out. Hmm. He returned six minutes later, this time with his rifle that he'd hidden underneath the hoodie that he was wearing. He entered the store's elevator and took it to the third floor of Von Mar. As soon as the doors to the elevator opened, he stepped out and began to open fire. Immediately, holiday shoppers and store employees began to take cover or attempted to evacuate, mm. and many placed calls to 911. More than 60 calls to 911 were made in the first eight minutes following the first gunshots. Wow. Diane Trent, head of the shipping department at Von Mar, called 911 from the customer service desk. The dispatcher could hear the sound of gunfire as Diane described what was happening in the store before she gasped, saying that she could see the shooter. As the sound of her voice grew in volume and panic, so did the sounds of gunfire before the call went silent. Oh, my gosh. Another Von Mar employee, Director of Personnel Jody Longmire, also made a call to 911, but not before being a literal hero. As she was hiding from the shooter, terrified for her own life, she took stock of the situation. She hunkered down and stayed as quiet as she could as she heard the shooter on his spree. She knew that some of her coworkers and friends had been shot, but she didn't know if they were okay. She took a look from where she was hiding and got a good look at the shooter. 
Once the sounds of the gunfire faded, she tiptoed as quietly as she could around the back room that she'd been hiding in and looked out a window that looked out onto the sales floor. Hmm. She didn't see the shooter, but instead saw a customer who was standing in the middle of the sales floor looking very confused, most likely in shock from what was happening. Hmm. Jody then decided that she needed to help this woman. She ventured out onto the sales floor and spoke to the woman who said that she wanted to get out of the store. And so Jody led her to the lockers that had stairs leading to outside nearby. Oh, wow. When she got to the lockers, she saw one of her coworkers, Janet Jorgensen, unresponsive on the floor. She got the lady out safely and then called 911, where she gave a remarkably detailed and composed report of what was happening. White gentleman, young, dressed in black, with a kind of mustache, firing a large automatic type of gun, gunman's whereabouts unknown, multiple people shot on the third floor, possibly up to five. Wow. Initially, when the reports of shots fired came into police, they weren't immediately concerned, but very quickly realized that this was different than typical shots fired calls that they'd received in the past. People were in a panic, obviously, Mm -hmm. and so the information that was being provided to dispatchers was a little bit hazy. For example, the description of the shooter was vague. And there were issues at the 911 center, like glitches in the system and stuff like that. But once dispatchers realized how serious these calls were, police were immediately sent to West Roads. From the time these first 911 calls were made to the time that police had arrived at West Roads was somewhere around six minutes. Hmm. In those six minutes, Robert continued his rampage through the store. When officers entered the building, they arrived to a surreal scene. The first officer who arrived, Sergeant Stephen Worley, had actually entered without backup due to the standards changing in how mass shootings were handled by law enforcement Mm post-Columbine. Don't wait, go in, Wow, just to keep it short. There was a lot of criticism for how long it took for officers to react. And this is a conversation, unfortunately, that we've had Mm -hmm. a lot of times. just recently. Recently, even, with the Uvalde shooting. And that Mm -hmm. so many things like that, that, that comes up a lot. So this guy, he went right in. Yeah. So procedures for mass shootings were still new, and the training had been changed and upgraded since this time. So like since the time of this, the Von Mar shooting. Yeah. So anyways, Sergeant Worley entered Von Mar, and immediately he saw a pair of women's shoes on the floor that appeared as though someone had literally just ran right out of their shoes in an attempt to flee for safety. Hmm. Quote, it looks like people fled out of here pretty good, end quote, Worley said over his radio. By this point, the store was like a ghost town. Yeah. Uh, wow. Henry, I'm going to say Cords. Henry Cords could be Cordes. Henry Cords for the Omaha World Herald described the initial scene in this way. Quote, scattered across the floor were purses, shopping bags, even baby strollers. Worley detected no movement across the wide sales floor. An alarm sounded mixing with the Christmas music playing through the store. It was like a science fiction movie where an explorer finds an abandoned world with an unknown, unseen monster on the loose. Mm. Worley made his way to the store's atrium where he found the first evidence of Hawkins' killing spree, end quote. When Worley rounded the area near an elevator, that's where he saw the first victim down and unresponsive, a custodian at Von Mar by the name of Gary Joy. So another really sad element to this story is that there was a lot of confusion and a lot of conflicting information being sent to police. Mm. And like the conversations via radio were not helping anybody get an actual like grasp of what the situation was for like a minute, even at the point that officers are arriving. Hmm. So at this point, they didn't know if there were multiple shooters, a single shooter, if the shooter had continued into other areas of the mall or anything because of this. 
Communication has since been streamlined in order to prevent this kind of confusion from happening sure, again. Sure. But at this time, the primary goal was to find and subdue the suspect or suspects. And so once other officers arrived, they had to literally step over victims asking for help in order to find the shooter to stop him from continuing his spree. Oh, man. Which is so gut-wrenching. Yeah. Shell casings that the officers immediately recognized as the kind used in SKS and AK-47 rifles with the ability to pierce even through bulletproof vests were found. Oh, wow. They immediately realized how big of a deal this really was. Quote, send every available car in the city, end quote. Wow. One of the officers requested that over his radio. Oh, man. That just gave me a chill up my spine. I know. It's so heavy. As soon as the weight of the situation was realized and as soon as that call was made, officers, some even in their personal vehicles and many without proper gear, and many officers that didn't even work for the Omaha Police Department, sped their way to West Roads in an attempt to help. Hmm. The courage of the people in today's story, not just from officers, but from regular citizens, is super powerful, as we've already seen and we'll keep seeing as we keep going. Hmm. So at the time that the emergency call was sent out to all officers, there was another single officer inside of Von Mar at the time, which was at 1.59 p.m., 17 minutes after the first shots were fired. At this point, the officer, Sheriff Sergeant Jones, was making his way through the store assessing the situation. He reached the second floor, and that's where he saw another victim, Gary Scharf, down and unresponsive. Mm. He checked Gary's pulse, but there was none. As he made his way to the third floor, the air was thick with smoke and the smell of gunpowder, and that's when he saw another party down, store manager Maggie Webb, unresponsive and clearly deceased. As he continued, he followed a trail of blood to the women's lounge, which I'm assuming is a changing room or like an employee area. Hmm. So when he opened the door, he saw two women alive but terrified, as well as a dozen or so other people helping an injured man, uh, Jeff Schaefert. Jeff turned to Officer Jones and asked if he could find his wife, who was still out in the store somewhere. Jones left the room, and he announced to the silent room that he was there to help. Almost immediately, dozens of people began popping up from inside of clothes racks and from behind desks and areas that they've been hiding. Wow. Among these people was Carrie Schaefer, Jeff's wife, who was unharmed. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So at this point, the shooter still hadn't been located. But as more officers arrived, the hunt was officially on to find him. As more officers arrived, more people that had been hiding around the store began to emerge from their hiding places as well, and then they would be slowly evacuated as police continued their search. So they were kind of able to, like, do both. They were kind Mm -hmm. of able to multitask Mm -hmm. for a minute. As the store was being surveyed, officers saw another body down in front of the customer service desk. They went to go check on the person when they realized they'd found the shooter, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Oh, jeez. In the customer service area, three more people were found down and unresponsive, and then two more were quickly found in the same area. Still, more people came out of hiding, and others needed to be coaxed out of hiding, frozen in place with shock. Sure, yeah. I just, like, can't even imagine. Yeah. As more people were evacuated, they were instructed not to look around so that they wouldn't have to see the bloody aftermath of this horrifying event that they just lived through. In all, eight people had their lives stolen, five more were injured, and then the shooter also died in the attack. Wow. It's widely reported that four people were injured, but I read that later it was revealed that a fifth victim reportedly sought medical treatment on her own. Mm, Okay. 
went and drove to the nearest hospital or something or Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um at almost the exact same time that officers discovered the shooter's body down in customer service jody longmire was still on the phone but had been transferred to a line where she was able to communicate with a fire dispatcher who could communicate with officers Mm, okay. This woman was incre- like incredible to yeah. me. She had snuck her way into a loss prevention office to check security cameras to see if she could locate the shooter. Hmm. She was like thinking on her feet. Wow. I I like casually joke a lot that in in like tense moments or stressful moments of stories that I tell that I would pass out. <laughs> I'm like actually not joking. I yeah, actually yeah. think I would pass out and I don't blame anybody who respond would respond in like a similar way in mm-hmm. such a horrifying moment. But this lady just, she blows my mind. She absolutely blows my mind how quickly she acted. Wow. She went into like protect, save the day mode. Yeah. <laughs> so just before officers had found him, she'd actually spotted him down and reported that over the phone. Heartbreakingly though, Just as easily as she could see the body of the shooter, she could also see the bodies of her friends that had been shot as well. Mm. Quote, I don't want to look anymore. I'm not looking anymore, she said. Wow. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. She was very helpful. Very, very, very helpful. Yeah. She, I mean, it sounds like she did what was absolutely needed in the moment, but Mm -hmm. at probably a great personal cost, I would imagine. I'm sure. Gosh, I'm sure. One of the most mind-bending aspects of this case is that Robert never gave a reason why. The officer's best guess is that Robert knew that the mall was not only a place with a potential for a high body count, but that it would be extra packed with people doing their holiday shopping, and so Mm -hmm. he chose to go there. One thing we never find in stories of mass shootings is a logical answer to the question why. Right. Because it's not logical. Right. It's senseless. Absolutely. Really, in, in this case... There's sort of an answer. It's not a satisfying one, but really this person was evil and he wanted to kill as many people as he could. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. And that might sound a little bit harsh, but like, that's what it is. Well, and it's, it it just, it takes me back to another episode we did recently of another serial murderer, serial killer. And, uh, the thing about serial and spree and mass murderers Mm -hmm. is they, I'm going to say this with um, kind of holding two very opposing thoughts at the same time, but these are people who are tormented and have something inherently wrong in mm-hmm. their brains, mm-hmm. at least momentarily. Yeah. And are absolutely like unwilling to let, let that go mm-hmm. um, because there's so much time to change your mind. Mm-hmm. There's so much time to go a different direction or just to like stop entirely. And, um, I, I had some strong words for our last, uh, our last murderer. Mm-hmm. And I would say all those same things about this too, is that it's literally just idiotic. Mm. Um, it's full of, uh, an unwillingness to just see things as they are. Mm-hmm. And it, from what you've said about his, uh, his background, he had every reason not to do this mm-hmm. and still chose to. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, this it, conversation would be very different had he not been provided with mental health care. Sure. 
or had he been in a home that was abusive yeah and there would still there would still not be a satisfying answer to the question why because it would still be equally as senseless yeah but i think the frustrating element of this whole thing is that he was provided with excellent care well, and even if he wasn't, this still wouldn't exactly. be justifiable. Totally, like, like you totally. said at the beginning of this episode, and it, it, it just there's so much to there's so much weight to this mm-hmm. story, um, and for us, this is extremely weighty because yeah. it's local in our hometown, mm-hmm. and we both remember it. Yeah, this is one that happened 80 years ago. That's right. still kind of theoretical. Right, like we were in high school when this happened, and I. I very vividly remember reading uh, the or seeing the news report mm-hmm. and almost not believing it. Like, how, how is this possible? Right. And kind of being shaken and then being fearful of like, what, well, what, what's next? And especially mm-hmm. as a teenager, you're like, you've never seen anything like this before. And you're just kind of like, well, how, how do we respond? What do we do? Right. Am I in danger? Right. You know? Yeah. So. Right. I feel like something very interesting came to mind while I was doing this. Because this is local, because I have a couple of degrees of separation from many, many people that were there that day or that knew someone there that day, I think there was a unique pressure. Mm -hmm. I felt this whole time to like, to be extra sensitive um, because you just never know if I'm talking about one of our listeners, family members. Yeah. And, uh, it kind of dawned on me. Like I've always, I've always tried really hard with every episode that we do to treat every victim and all of their family members and all of that with the same amount of care. Like I always try to tell their stories and like really point out the humanity of it. But I think that the, the weight of talking about true crime in general kind of hit me in a fresh way Mm -hmm. when I was doing this, where it's like all of us should all feel this heavy when we're reading or watching or consuming any true crime related content. Mm-hmm. We should all feel that weight. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I've been breathless this whole time telling this story because it's so weighty to me. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I guess I'm I'm my encouragement is just to always treat all of this as if you know somebody who was there. Right. You know, because these are all real people. Right. So I know I do harp on that a lot and I can probably annoy some people about it, but (laughs) like the humanity of these stories is really what makes them what they are. Yeah. So, all right, let's keep going. Let's keep moving. All right. So the following day, officers held a press conference where they listed out the names of those who had their lives stolen. Diane Trent, Gary Joy, Janet Jorgensen, Beverly Flynn, Angie Schuster, Maggie Webb, Gary Scharf, John McDonald. These are the names of the people who lost their lives. Real stories. Yeah. Real things they cared about, real things they were afraid of or excited about. These people loved others and other people loved them. So I really wanted to spend the solidest chunk of this episode giving some background on these people and the people who were also injured but survived. Um, But first, I just want to share for a minute about how the community of Omaha responded Hmm. after the news broke out about the shooting. Yeah. So we saw snippets of this in the little bit that I shared about the immediate aftermath right after the attack had taken place. We saw courage 
We saw people taking care of each other and helping each other. We saw empathy, all, mm-hmm. all kinds of good things. Um, obviously, the mall had been closed and police tape had been put up once the mall had been evacuated and once people had received medical care and cleanup inside of Von Mar had begun and all of that. But as soon as the tape was pulled away, despite the heavy grief that permeated the city, we saw the community at large respond with hope and kindness. In another article in a series written by Henry Cords, he wrote, quote, Almost as soon as police pulled back the yellow crime scene tape from the store's south doors, someone laid flowers. More wow. bouquets followed, along with a big white sign, Peace be with you. Amid the new fallen snow, an impromptu memorial was born. Thousands would visit the site and another inside the mall to pour out their hearts. Flowers, candles, a row of eight teddy bears, Christmas ornaments, personal notes, paper snowflakes by the thousands, handwritten prayers asking God to take the dead into his light. I wonder, one child wrote, if snowflakes are God's tears as they fall to earth in Omaha, end quote. Oh my gosh. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, and the pictures I'm the pictures are very famous of mm. the snowflake wall. Yeah. And the front of Von Mar with all yeah. the flowers I, and everything. I don't recall the snowflake wall, but I do recall the If front you of Von saw Mar. it, I probably would. You yeah. would remember it. It's one yeah. of those things that I'd forgotten about. Mm. And then as soon as I saw the picture, I like immediately it yeah. remembered it. Yeah. yeah. So I we were 15 mm-hmm. and in high school when this happened. I remember just like you said I can remember where I was and how I felt and what everything seemed like around me. I can remember friends making the trip Mm -hmm. to Omaha to go visit the memorial and leave flowers and things like that. And even though it was a really dark time, it was also really full of the best that humanity has to offer. Yeah. So did you have a thought? Sorry. Yeah. I I mean, my thought. So. For, for our listeners that are not local to this area, um, which is, is a solid chunk. solid chunk of people, um, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, but Omaha is an interesting city. It's one of the 50 largest cities in the country, um, but it still has a lot of charm of being a smaller town. Um, you can get from one side of the city to the other in like 20 minutes. And not uh, during rush hour, not during rush hour, (laughs) but generally speaking. Um, and there's a lot of pockets of community that, um, you are probably only a few degrees of separation between any other person in the city. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of camaraderie Mm -hmm. in Omaha, Nebraska. And then, um, Nebraska as a whole has a reputation for just being incredibly nice and welcoming and warm and kind. And so, um, just as you're describing the response from the city, mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't some small town out in the sticks or a little suburb even. This is like the city, the top fifty, mm-hmm. one of the top fifty largest cities. The whole city reacted like this. Yeah, and it's it's almost mind blowing to think about how a major city like Omaha would have a reaction and a response as if it was a tiny little country town Mm -hmm. with an accident happening. Mm -hmm. Like that was the response. And, Mm -hmm. um, well, and before you, before you keep going, just to tie it a little bit, I didn't grow up in Omaha. I grew up in a town about an hour from West roads Mm -hmm. and there's a million like 
the town that I grew up in, in the area. And my friends drove to Omaha to yeah. go to the memorial. Yeah. They were not the only ones who did that. Yeah. There were people from Omaha and the surrounding communities who were very, very moved yeah. and wanted to express care mm-hmm. and condolence and grief and sadness. They wanted to support the families. I mean, yeah. it, it really is mind blowing. Yeah. There's a lot of depth to the community in Omaha. And this was a moment where even in the darkness of it, that, that depth of community really like was a, was a bright light, especially in the middle of the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. On the day that Von Mar reopened on December 19th, Two weeks after the shooting, employees were nervous but hopeful. As soon as the doors opened, employees were met with customers, friends, and total strangers who made the trip to the mall to go and see them, offering them hugs and condolences and encouragement. The store was full of people who'd never shopped there, as well as plenty of people that had shopped there plenty of times. And the store actually ended up having a record-breaking sales day that day, Hmm. which I thought was, like, really cool. Yeah, that's neat. So let's spend some time talking about those who were injured in the attack first. 61-year-old Fred Wilson was a manager in the customer service department. He had been shot in the chest and lost three quarters of his blood by the time he arrived at the emergency room at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Wow. Three quarters. Miraculously, though, even though he had no pulse for a time, he was listed as being in stable condition after a little over a week in the hospital. He was actually released on the 19th, the day that the store had reopened, and then he returned to work without pomp or circumstance seven months after the shooting. Wow. He retired in 2014, but he sort of became the unofficial face of the Von Mar survivors because of his amazing message that he was determined to spread. You can't live life holding on to anger or hate. Instead, you should choose to live your life and to live it with love and grace and the courage that it takes to face the hard knocks and changes of life. Wow. He encourages everyone to take care of each other and to help each other out. He also used to be a drama teacher, and even after he retired, he still offered drama lessons to students. After retiring, he also continued to visit Von Mar often, never forgetting to acknowledge the gold plaque on the wall with the names of those who died. Wow. So he's a real special guy. Yeah, sounds like it. Another survivor was 65-year-old Michelle or Mickey Oldham. Mickey had been working in customer service at Von Mar on the day of the shooting and was shot twice. Mm. She was sent to Creighton Medical Center where she was treated for injuries to her back and abdomen. She went on to write a book about her experience chronicling the incident and what happened specifically to her. Mm. She believed that she survived so she could tell people that life's too short not to be happy. Wow. She did book signings for her book, 35 Minutes and Counting, at two restaurants in the Omaha suburb of Bennington and donated all the proceeds from her book to an organization in Omaha called The Viking Ship, which worked with youths in Omaha. This woman was amazing. From a profile that I read about her life, she'd been through the ringer. She'd lost her husband at her midlife mark and lost a child. Wow. She'd also been involved in an accident where a semi-trailer smashed into her car that she survived, and then she survived this shooting. Jeez. While she never fully recovered physically from her injuries, she really lived a super inspiring life with the attitude of, life is wonderful and worth living even when it's hard. Mm -hmm. She passed away in 2016 at the age of 73. Wow. Yeah, Mickey sounded really sweet. She did. You can actually get her book on Amazon. 
Hmm. It's like, I think like $12. So definitely pick that up if you want to hear more of her story. Hmm. So next we have Jeff Schaefer, who was 34 at the time of the shooting, and then his wife, Carrie. The two were out and about shopping for a Christmas dress for Carrie. In the chaos, they were separated and then reunited as others that were hiding from the attack tended to Jeff's wounds. Jeff was struck by bullets in his arm and finger, and the bullet that hit his arm missed a major artery by like millimeters. Oh my gosh. Jeff said in an interview that he gave earlier this week that he feels lucky to be alive. Despite not suffering any gunshot wounds, Carrie painted a vivid picture of what it's like to face such a horrifying ordeal and the emotional wounds that come with it. She said, quote, I think there's this perception that something bad happens and then you're supposed to heal and get over it when there really isn't an end date to healing, mm. end quote, which I thought was very well said. Yeah. And it gives the people who are struggling to see any good mm -hmm. in a hard situation that they've gone through. It kind of gives them the like, not permission, that's not the right word, but it's kind of like, OK, I'm not alone in having a hard time getting through this and right. coping with it, right. which and, I think is good. And and that it's, it's okay if it takes a long time to mm -hmm. even feel like you made marginal sure. uh, uh, steps towards that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the fourth person who was injured, 34 year old Mandy Haida was out shopping with her four year old son when she was struck in the leg by a bullet fragment, but luckily was not seriously wounded and didn't need additional medical treatment for her physical injuries. Mm. I also saw that a day after the shooting, she found a casing from a bullet in her pocket. Oh, wow. Which was like a like an existential moment for her, how she described yeah. it. Like, I was this close. Wow. This could have hit an artery. This yeah. could have gone up a few inches. Yeah. This could have hit my child. Like, heavy. So I couldn't find much information about her, but I'm so glad she wasn't more seriously injured, and I hope that she's doing well. Mm -hmm. And then it was later learned that another woman, 52-year-old Elizabeth Robinson, was also struck by a bullet fragment, which she also sought treatment for on her own. Mm. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about each of those who were killed. 53-year-old Diane Trent was described as being incredibly sweet. She loved tending to her flowers and sipping tea on the porch with her neighbor and friend, Errol Schlenker. She didn't have children, but absolutely adored her dog and two cats that she took great care of. And she also loved doting on her nieces and nephews, since many of them also lived in Omaha. Diane also had a love for travel and spent many years as an airline stewardess, and she loved working with people. She worked at customer service at Von Mar for eight years at the time of her death, and she really was the ideal person to have working such a job. She was always smiling and ready to be helpful, and she treated everyone with kindness, dignity, and care. Next, let's talk about 56-year-old Gary Joy. He was a custodian at Von Mar for many years. He was described as being extremely dedicated and hardworking. He was also very smart. He had a degree in literature and loved to write his own stories and poetry as well. He was also remembered as knowing everyone's name that he worked with and for remembering things about each of them, which is all the more evidence yeah, of his character. Yeah. He was also remembered for going around and cracking jokes with his employees to brighten their days as he worked through his job. Gary would spend a lot of his free time visiting and taking care of his mother and was super devoted to spending time with her. He sounds like he was a really sweet guy. Yeah. 
66-year-old Janet Jorgensen was a longtime employee of the gift department at Von Mar, and literally everybody loved her. Oh. Her funeral was attended by over 1,000 people, and the wow. pastor—I know. Oh, my gosh. I know. And the pastor at her funeral said that she, quote, gave the gift of life to her husband, her children, and those around her in so many precious ways, end quote. Her grandchildren also each took turns reading written prayer requests for the other victims and their families, as well as for first responders on the scene. Her family described her as being the rock and pillar of their family. She was always the first happy face and voice to greet anyone as they walked through the door, and it seems like joy and light seemed to follow her everywhere. One of her grandkids also said that one of their first memories of her was when she rocked them in a wooden rocking chair while singing You Are My Sunshine. (laughs) I know. Janet and her husband, Ron, met when they were 15 years old. Wow. And then they fell in love. Yeah. They went on to get married and build a beautiful life together, leaving behind a legacy of joy, love, faith, and sweetness. Her co-workers, many friends, and family miss her every day and still feel as though the loss of her hasn't fully sunk in because she was so one of a kind. Yeah. 36-year-old Angie Schuster had been working as a manager in the girls' department at Von Mar at the time she was killed. Unfortunately, the elevator that the shooter exited out of was right where she worked every day. Angie graduated from college with a teaching degree, but wasn't having much luck finding a job in the teaching field when she began working in retail. Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend, Greg, was planning on proposing to her in the upcoming weeks, potentially before Christmas Eve, so he could really catch her off guard and surprise her. Yeah, She and Greg had recently moved in together. Angie was also super close with her sister, which... Mm. I get that. They were born only 11 months apart, and they were literally the best of friends and spent so much time together. Angie loved to bring home gifts for her nephew and nieces, as well as for Greg's daughter, from the various stores that she'd worked at over the years. She was described as, quote, so sincere and so real and so caring and loving and so nonjudgmental, end quote. Hmm. It's really hard to read about these people and their stories and to can't like catch a glimpse of how much life that they had left to live yeah. at the time that they were murdered. Yeah. It's like so unfair. Mm-hmm. Like she's such a great example of that. She had more she was going to do. Sure. Yeah. So anyways, whew, next we have 47 year old Beverly Flynn. She was a devoted wife to her husband of 27 years, Patrick, and to her three daughters who she loved with her whole heart. In different articles I read about Beverly, her kids each had very fun and very specific memories with Beverly. She'd bring the youngest with her anywhere she could, uh, including to her office where she worked as a realtor. (laughs) She was working part-time at Von Mar as a gift wrapper during the Christmas season because she loved Christmas and loved wrapping gifts. She (laughs) also loved Von Mar, and so she was excited to get to work there. Yeah. Plus, she planned to use the extra money to give fun gifts to her kids and to help fund a cabin building project that her and her husband were working on. They bought some land that they were clearing out in Colorado to build a kind of like weekend getaway cabin. They were very proud of their progress. She was known by her clients for her signature gesture, gifting new homeowners with a rose bush for them to plant in the garden of their new homes. She was described as being incredibly witty and smart, super fun and caring, and a wonderful friend. Her visitation and funeral were attended by so many people that for the entirety of the two-hour visitation, the line of people who came to support her family did not thin out at all. Wow. For two full hours, the line was out the door, wrapping through the whole place. 
She loved the color orange, and she had always said that she wished to be buried in a nightgown, so Von Mar actually gifted her family a peach nightgown for her to be buried in, <laughs> which I thought was a sweet yeah. gesture. That's like a personality yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, her family misses her in the big moments and in the small moments, and she'll always be remembered for how fully that she loved them. The last of the Von Mar employees to be killed in the attack was 24-year-old Maggie Webb. Mm. She was also oh the gosh. youngest person to be killed in the attack. Yeah. Maggie was just two short weeks away from turning 25 at the time of her death. She graduated with a degree in business administration in 2005 and had worked for several years at the Chicago location of Von Mar before transferring to the Omaha store where she worked as a manager. Hmm. Despite being far from home, Maggie would talk on the phone with her mom and sister all the time. They were super close. Her sister said, quote, she made you feel special when you were with her, and when you were away from her, you still knew she loved you, end quote. Her family said that the word love was the perfect word to sum up Maggie. She treated everyone with kindness and respect, and because of that, the people that she'd managed at Von Mar all respected her right back. Wow. The final two victims were both customers at Von Mar. 48-year-old Gary Scharf had stopped by Von Mar on his way to the airport where he planned to fly to Las Vegas to receive an award for his work in the agricultural business. Like so many others in this story, Gary responded to the horror of an active shooter situation with courage. Hmm. He pulled a woman off an escalator, getting her to safety. Call logs also indicate that he was either the first caller to call 911 or one of the first few. Mm, He died saving people's lives. Wow. Gary loved to brag about his son, who he was super proud of. His funeral was full of tears, but also with tons of laughter because that's the kind of person that Gary was. He was funny and silly, and his sister referred to him as a grown-up Boy Scout because of his love of helping people. He'd recently helped a single mom get her car started back up and then took it upon himself to send groceries and household items to her home. He and his ex-wife had been divorced for a couple of years, but she said that on the way out of divorce court, he'd said that they'd get married again in six months. (laughs) And indeed, the two had recently had conversations about getting remarried shortly before he died. She called him her deadly do-right. Oh, my gosh. His family said that the service was perfect. He wouldn't have wanted anyone to be sad. He would have wanted people to crack jokes and share fun stories and memories. (laughs) So that's scary. The final victim was 65-year-old John McDonald. On the day of the shooting, John and his wife of 40 years had stopped at Von Mar where they were getting some gifts wrapped. They tried to hide as soon as gunshots began to fly, and they got separated in the chaos. Later on, John's wife Kathy found out that John had likely died in an attempt to save other people by going after the shooter. Many credit him for this for a few reasons, but one of the most powerful being the fact that there were still 18 rounds left in the rifle uh, of the gun, of the shooter. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had planned to use all of them from what everybody assumed. And so the idea is that as he tried to get the gun away from the shooter, or maybe if he surprised him, caught him off guard, Mm -hmm. that John was shot, and that's when the shooter turned the gun on himself. He got kind of like broken out. It feels weird to say it this way, but like broken out of his stride. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, yeah, that interrupted his spree. Yeah. 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 So I haven't seen that confirmed, but that's what a lot of people stated. They believed happened. Hmm. Kathy described John as one of the greatest people anyone could hope to meet. She said he was super funny and so accepting of other people. He loved music and played guitar and was also into electronics and astronomy. 
John and Kathy were retired and living in Council Bluffs, Iowa at the time John had been killed. She said that she found little comfort in things like her husband being called a hero or that her last words to him were, I love you, because she just misses him so much. She actually left his voice on the voicemail for the family phone so she could hear his voice and because she didn't feel right changing it. He left behind a legacy of love for his wife, two children, and multiple grandchildren. Before we close out today's episode, a friend of ours and of the podcast, Krista, had connected us with one of her loved ones who was an employee at Von Mar and left shortly before the attack. So Kelly was super generous to share some of her experiences with her coworkers, and I just wanted to share some of what she told us to really drive the point home that when we tell these stories, we're telling the stories of real people. Yeah. So Kelly says, quote, I started working in the second floor in the shoe department. Working in that area was hard because the coworkers were a little tough on new people, but I got them to like me <laughs> with a bunch of laughing emojis. <laughs> I got promoted to the third floor girls department manager position and loved it. I worked with Angie. We would get lunch at Renza and she got me hooked on the mushroom burger, <laughs> which Renza is a local There's regional delicacy delicacy honestly. for those who don't know. <laughs> uh, I love to talk to Janet. I just remembered how much she and her husband loved each other. I'm pretty sure he once had people sing to her on their anniversary. (laughs) Diane was also my friend. She worked in shipping, and when I was pregnant with my daughter, I would go see her, and she would give me name ideas to help me name my daughter. She loved the name Redacted. Not going to say it. Sure. uh, To protect privacy. And that is what we named her. Yeah. So Diane helped her name her baby. That child is an adult now. Uh, She gave me the sweetest Christmas ornament for her. She gifted her an ornament. (laughs) We all like to go to TGI Fridays for reverse happy hour after the long days when we had to take inventory. I liked working there. When I left, Angie took my place as manager of the girls' department on the third floor. I remember Gary being very kind and quiet. The survivors, Fred and Mickey, were fun to work with. Mickey wrote a book about the shooting. It was so sad when she passed. Fred was a very put-together person, always on point. When they showed the names on TV, my husband called me and told me to turn off the TV because he saw the names before me and he knew that it was people that I knew. Yeah. After it happened, people would say how lucky I was that I didn't work there or that it could have been me. That Mm. put a heaviness on my heart because I felt horrible that Angie had passed and the comment that it could have been me was a shock. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Kelly. I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. As we look back at the events that took place 15 years ago this week at Von Mar at West Roads Mall in Omaha, Nebraska, we do see a lot of senseless tragedy. This should have never happened. Yeah. But we also can reflect on the way that communities showed up for each other and on the countless ways that the lives of those who were taken too soon have touched many people in the community and beyond. My hope with doing stories like these is not to leave listeners with shock and awe, Not to get into the nitty-gritty, gross details about a murder case, but to remind all of us of the humanity behind the stories of the victims. Mm. I hope I managed to do that with this episode. So I used a bunch of incredibly written articles by Henry Cords for the Omaha World Herald for this episode, and I wanted to extend a personal thank you, even though you'll probably never hear it, Henry. Thank you for how much work you put in to the coverage of this story over the course of over a decade. Yeah. So he really helped paint a full picture. And so I'll be linking some of his articles in the show notes in case anyone wants to take the time to read through those. And yeah. that is what I have for you today. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. 
I don't have a lot to say in this episode because it uh, it just hits my heart. Yeah, mine too. I have been weeping, typing this up for a couple of days, and with reading the updates with, you know, like the interviews with the Schaeferts, um, and just kind of their experience and how, how things are 15 years later, and then just reading about these people who had their lives cut off. Yeah. Just right in the middle yeah. of doing really beautiful things. It's just heavy. And as much as I hate, hate these kinds of stories, I hate that this happened. Yeah. Um, it's important that we talk about it. This stuff happens. And we're not, at this point in the podcast, we're not, you know, we're not having conversations so much about policy. We do have some conversations about, you know, mental health care and like we want to advocate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for that. Um, but but really at the end of the day, our heart is really is really just to share the importantest parts of the story. Yeah. So I hope we manage to do that. Yeah. I think there's just so much in this story that um and and for sure like it's near to us by proximity mm-hmm. um and in history like mm-hmm. we both remember it all that um but even just just the time spent to remember all of the victims mm-hmm. um both injured and deceased and hearing about the things that they loved and the things that they enjoyed. Um, yeah. And how just, people remember them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, there's a lot of just sweetness in mm. that, mm. that, you know, even in the, the, the absolute depravity mm. <laughs> and darkness of the event, mm-hmm. um, you can still reach in and like find the little things that, mm-hmm. that bring some light into yeah. the room. And those things, those little things end up usually being the big things. Yeah. For sure. This was a tough one. <sighs> yes. It so, yeah. Definitely was. I am very emotional right now. So, we're going to go ahead and wrap <laughs> this up. That's all right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much, everybody, uh, for listening to uh, this unusual, unsettling, unsavory story today. Um, I can't read this one. <sighs> yeah. And uh, I, I don't think we even could if we if we wanted to yeah um if uh you haven't already please make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and if you haven't yet please uh, leave a five-star review it does help other people to find this podcast who are interested in the similar uh subjects and uh hopefully this is at least a fresh take on some of these sorts of stories um at the very least so please leave a five-star review for that um, also you can follow us on social media. If you haven't already, we are on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And, um, you had something that you wanted to share with people this yes, week. Yes. Yes. So in case you missed our Instagram post yesterday, we are officially on Patreon. Oh yeah. Yes. At the moment, we only have one tier for patrons to subscribe to and your support over there would be so much appreciated. 
We have goals of expanding and growing the show, and your support would allow us to carve out more time to be able to work on making content. Mm -hmm. You can check that out in the link in our Instagram bio, in our link on our Facebook page, or by searching This One's a Doozy podcast on Patreon. Yeah. Well, one last thing. You can also email us with your suggestions um, and your uh, personal stories. Um, and any feedback you might have, you can email us at this one is a doozy at gmail.com. Um, or if you are a local brewery looking to, uh, <laughs> sponsor the show full circle, full circle, uh, that's a great way to get in touch with us as well. <laughs> oh, and with that, we are so thankful that you're listening and we will see you next week for another doozy. Thanks guys. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.